0: Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, all you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show takes Hemingway at his own premise. We ask our guest a very simple question, his choice for Hemingway's one true sentence and why, and then, as Hemingway writes, go on from there. We are delighted to be joined by a friend, someone who would talk to me about Hemingway even before I had a podcast, Mark Ott. Mark P. Ott is the author of A Sea of Change, Ernest Hemingway and the Gulf Stream, A Contextual Biography, he is the co-editor of Ernest Hemingway and the Geography of Memory, New Perspectives, and Hemingway in Italy, 21st Century Perspectives. He edits the Teaching Ernest Hemingway series for Kent State University Press and has published widely on different aspects of American literature and Hemingway studies. His TEDx talk on Hemingway currently has over 50,000 views. He is now working as the headmaster of the Windsor School in the Bahamas. And of course, Mark, Michael and I are available as guest lecturers. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast and playing One True Sentence.
1: All right. Well, Thanks so much for inviting me, Mark. And it's, it's really a pleasure to be here with you and Michael. And just to be clear, I, I do have over 50,000 views of my TEDx talk, that's true. And 49,988 of those people hate it, right? So they do hate it. So, uh, I, Mark,
0: as, lo- as long as they're talking
1: about you, that's, that's the important thing. <laughs> right. Well, we, we take it all in stride, but it was fun to do that, but I'll never do one again. Right. <laughs> Unlike a podcast, I'm happy to do a podcast. You.
0: Well, you're always, you're welcome anytime. And so we will start this is I'm going to ask you what your one true sentence is and why.
1: Well, my one true sentence is quote, the river was there and quote from uh, Big Two-Hearted River, Part One. And, you know, I, I come to Hemingway through the lens of a teacher, and I always think of him as being so fundamental for how we teach close reading to our students. And I think of that sentence, the river was there as like a brick in a Jenga tower, if you will. In other words, if you plucked that one out of Big Two-Hearted River, if you plucked it out of In Our Time as a whole, If you plucked it out of Hemingway's whole accomplishment as a writer of fiction, I think thematically and ultimately didactically, what he's trying to teach us will be lost. So it's really, in some ways, a distillation of so many of his fundamental ideas. Uh, Just to to plunge in a little deeper, I'll read the whole paragraph that it appears in, and then we can talk a little bit more about it. But it becomes, it's in the first couple paragraphs of Big Two-Hearted River, Uh, part one. And I'll, I'll read that to you. It starts with, quote, Nick looked at the burned over stretch of hillside where he had expected to find the scattered houses of the town and then walked down the railroad track to the bridge over the river. The river was there. It swirled against the log piles of the bridge. Nick looked down into the clear brown water colored from the pebbly bottom and watched the trout keeping themselves steady in the current with wavering fins. As he watched them, they changed their positions by quick angles only to hold steady in the fast water again. Nick watched them a long time, end quote. I think for so many reasons, you have to keep in mind what would happen if Nick gets there and the river is not there, if it's polluted, right? if it's uh, filled with garbage, if it's you know there's no fish in it. You think about how important it is to the sustaining structure of those short stories to find that clear, swiftly moving water of that river, right? It's the same water we see in the first paragraph of A Farewell to Arms. It's the same water in many ways of the Gulf Stream that we see with Santiago. It's Hemingway in many ways looking at the life force in a way that, that's meant to show how um, essential it is to our spiritual rejuvenation, that once we have this deeper connection to the natural world, we understand our lives more fully. And, um, you know, I could go on. We could talk more about why Hemingway landed there. But I think the chronology of the story, in particular, its composition, is incredibly interesting. Just where it came up and in Hemingway's life. Um, Keep in mind the story itself. Indian Camp was begun in November. And and Big Two-Hearted River was begun the following May in 1924. It's right when Hemingway's becoming a father. And that's, that's crucial. It's right after Hadley has lost the suitcase of manuscripts, right? And it's so crucial that he has to start over from scratch. And as he's doing that, this idea of the cycle of life, of becoming a young father, is so crucial uh, to yeah. his shift in theme. If you think about the two stories that were not lost in that Belize, right, when Hadley lost it in Paris, it was Up in Michigan and My Old Man. Two stories that really have very little to do with the natural world. Granted, there's cycles of life up in Michigan, but it's a very different take than what we're getting here.
0: Mark, that's great. And there's so much in what you said that I'd like to uh, put a little bit more pressure on. So when you see the river was there, especially in the context of Big Two-Hearted River, he has just talked about some of the things in the natural world that aren't there anymore. So he's distinguishing the permanence of nature in the case of the river, but also the impermanence of nature in some of its surrounding aspects of the setting. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I I think, you know, you think about the word there, right? That sense of a bedrock, something you can really rely on. No matter where we are, the, the nature persists, right? I moved to the Bahamas from Deerfield, Massachusetts. And I know that when I go back to Deerfield, the Deerfield River, where, where I fished, right, where my children swam, that's going to still be there. The river will be there. And so that eternal connection we have to a sense of place is also part of the rejuvenation. Thomas Wolfe says, you can't go home again. That's because home may be burned out. Home's going to look different. The people that were in that home they may no longer be with us. But nature is going to persist. The, the big rocks and mountains of our lives, the rivers, they are there for us.
0: So big two-hearted river. And I mean, I think this story and part of what your sentence the river was there. In, in a weird way, that very short sentence might tell you a lot about Nick Adams. And what his mindset is and his emotional attachment to the setting. So, what about that the river in the entire story? What does the big two-hearted river mean for Nick?
1: Well, I, I think it's it's so interesting to think about Nick's character development. You know, keeping in mind we start with Indian camp, where we have the young Nick who is making a circle in the water, right, as the bass jumps. And that trout completes, in many ways, the circle of life there. And then, of course, we have Right before we get to a big two-hearted river, we have out of season, where the river there. Keep in mind, it's it's filled with trash. It's um, brown and muddy, and beside a dump heap. And so as we get to the big two-hearted river, I mean, it's such a lovely title, the big two-hearted river. I think you know it's interesting the placement of that in the stories too, because we're coming right after cross-country snow, where there's this idea that that all right, he's going to get married, he's going to settle down, he's going to become a family man because uh, a baby is on the way. And in some ways, there's that heart that belongs to his wife. And then we get to Big Two-Hearted River. There's no domesticity in that story. He's not in love with his wife or perhaps an emergent child. He's in love with nature, right? And so the heart is being pulled in two different directions at the end of the story. Keeping in mind, too, that last sentence, there would be plenty of days coming when he could fish the swamp the beautiful right. ambiguity what is the swamp is the swamp going back and dealing with a, an emerging family that he's he started right is the swamp the mess of a divorce has he abandoned the family is this even the same character obviously we have a certain sense of ambiguity here about the characterization that's meant to offer a broad range of interpretations but that big two-hearted river that sense of being pulled in different directions i think is essential to to kind of hemingway's characterization So I'm here in my
0: office and surrounded by lots and lots of books, and I'm seeing a lot of black spines from my beloved Library of America volumes, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, Steinbeck, Baldwin, Melville, two of William James, and now Robert W. Trogdon has edited The Sun Also Rises and other writings from 1918-1926. And it will be essential for all Hemingway readers. Just go to LOA.org and place your order for this long-awaited Library of America edition of Hemingway's work. LOA.org. That's fascinating to to bring up the swamp that ends up being the final note of the story. So is the big two-hearted river for Nick ultimately therapeutic? or therapeutic to an extent, or are there hidden dangers within the uh, peaceful facade?
1: Well, I, I think you have to see the river almost as, as a character, as something he has a relationship with. And like all relationships, you're going to have moments of joy and elation and good humor and fun, right? Catching a fish, a beautiful yeah. trout, and bringing it on shore. Great fun and then disappointment and perhaps betrayal. And I think that's part of what Hemingway is trying to elucidate thematically is just his complete depiction of the natural world as a character in and of itself. We can see that too as we, you know, you're moving on to looking at uh, the Sun Also Rises, right, where the river yields six trout that were, quote, beautifully colored and firm and hard from the cold water. And then we have that Spanish sod, right, the great chunks of sod that come out and the Sun Also Rises. And then we have in the Green Hills of Africa, the river of the Gulf Stream, which he describes that pile of garbage, palm fronds, corks, bottles, used electric bulbs, etc. that have no significance against the one lasting thing, the stream. And so so much of what Hemingway does right in his subsequent fiction is to circle back to find some kind of meaning in the connection to nature.
0: So that's where I exactly where I was going Mark because if you think of let's say 3 of his later publications, Islands in the Stream, Across the River and Into the Trees, Old Man in the Sea. Just in the very title, you have bodies of water being identified. And we're looking at a very early Hemingway work. Did his relationship with nature or with the water uh, fishing in, in your research, in your in your work, did it evolve over time and over his career? Or was this always the river was there and just as it was
1: for Hemingway throughout his whole career? Uh, It's a tough question and an interesting question. I think, too, I mean, just the, as you look at the manuscript's violence in the stream, I think you see him seeking kind of that unity in a coherent form of a very ambitious novel that never gets fulfilled. You know, you look at Thomas Hudson and his his problems in, in that story where he, He's drinking a lot, and he, you know, in that passage where he's driving to town, he says he, "I drink against poverty, dirt, and four hundred year old dust, etc." So rather than having things that are rejuvenating, he's seeing garbage. And you think, conversely, going back to "For Whom the Bell Tolls," right, where Robert Jordan is feeling life li- leaving him, as quote, "His heart beats against the pine needle floor of the forest." End quote. Right. So he's deeply connected to nature. And I think, too, what makes the old man in the sea work so well is that concision, but also just that imagery, right? The dark water, quote, of the true Gulf Stream is the greatest healer that there is. The sense that water is going to heal us. And that Gulf Stream is part of the same river up in Michigan. It's the same river in Spain, right? We get that deep connection that's going to heal him in the same way that if you're in a good relationship with another human being, right? It's rejuvenating. It gives you a life force. I think, you know, paradoxically, I think that's what you see at towards the end of Hemingway's life, really. You could take it from 1950 onwards, where many of his relationships, personal relationships, were not as authentic, perhaps, or as sustaining and mutual, that there was a certain transactional element to almost every relationship that he was in, where people were feeding off his celebrity, feeding off of his money, and feeding off just kind of his ambiance. And that part of, I think feeds back into his fiction, where, where something authentic is lost, and so, you know, I don't know if you agree with me on that, but I just think that that's really sad when we move away from the old man in the sea into those later years and yeah. see how what he can accomplish.
0: Well, I I love what you're saying about the the river being a character and Nick having a relationship and other Hemingway protagonists having a relationship. You know, Santiago tests the limits of the Gulf Stream. When he goes out, he goes farther than he usually goes. And actually, Nick does the same thing, right? He, 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 we want to see how big a trout he can he can withstand and how deep in the water he can withstand. So he's actually doing something as a young man that Santiago would also do as, a, as an older man is just see what the bounds of, of nature actually are.
1: Well, and I think it's interesting to know, too, how that philosophy does pivot for Hemingway, right? When he first encounters the Gulf Stream, for example, in these rivers, the young Hemingway is certainly in the Teddy Roosevelt mold of somebody who wants to conquer and harvest nature. He wants to catch the fish. He wants to obviously shoot the lions and shoot, you know, in his whole life hunting, whether it's partridges or ducks or what have you. He wants to conquer nature. But later in life, keep in mind, too, right, for Santiago, when the fish had hit it, as he writes, it was as though he himself were hit, end quote. So Santiago is unified, right, with the natural world in a way that a young Nick Adams catching that fish, he's still trying to understand his relationship with nature. Yes. Is he going to conquer it? Or is he going to find some way to live in harmony, or in peace with it?
0: That's an excellent point. And your answer about the relationship to these bodies of water also make me think of The Sun Also Rises and not only the fishing scene, but also Nick's, uh, Jake's uh, series of dives at the end of the novel, sort of the cleansing properties of of water. And I I mean, do you think of The Sun Also Rises in this context at all, Uh, both the fishing and the swimming?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up, that scene in San Sebastian, right, where Jake is on the raft and he's taking these deep dives and he comes up to the surface and there's a young man and his girlfriend there and they're together. They're a couple. And that's where Jake has to come to peace with the fact that because of his wound, because of his life, he's never going to be in that kind of relationship that's going to be sustaining and be balanced. And so I think in some ways, Hemingway is using the water imagery as something that brings some tranquility, brings some peace to Jake's characterization. You know, it's interesting, too. I mean, you get diving scenes in the manuscript of Islands in the Stream as well. You get, you know, the sense Hemingway always is is talking about in in his letters about the healing powers of the Gulf Stream, for example, how it's an extension of the Fountain of Youth and that sense of water as rejuvenating, whether it's it's you know, the Fox river up in Northern Michigan, or whether it's the Ebro in Spain, or whether it's the Aradi in Spain or
0: you exactly. know, we get
1: the Gulf stream, it's always, there's something in that water moving through the stream, that clear, swiftly moving water we get in a, in a farewell to arms, all of that, right. It's something he wants us to notice and pay attention to uh, that can help us understand our own lives.
0: Mark, as we are, Winding down, I I didn't want to neglect the sentence that you chose just from a sent uh, the, the linguistic level. You you said the river was there, and I think that would strike people as almost a uh, stereotypically Hemingway esque sentence where it was it's so spare and it's so direct. So I'm wondering, do you have do you have anything to say about it just as a let's say a Hemingway esque sentence? And is this the type of sentence that perhaps was typical for Hemingway at the time, but maybe not as his career went along? Or what? how do you judge this as characteristic of Hemingway?
1: Well, that's a terrific question. I, I think looking at the, to me, the most important word there is there. We've got four words, but... You know, as if you had that in a student paper, for example, you might say, "What do you mean by there right and And yet the reader brings so much to that sentence, to that word that there should really resonate with the reader there meaning the river has endured. the river is still has these beautiful trout in it that you can see swimming the The river has this life force that you can participate in. It is there that despite you know again, it's a post-war story despite the desolation and the carnage and the waste of the first great war you can go back and the river is there and what can we learn from that what can we take away from that how can we connect with that i think you know for hemingway too if you look at the, just his uh, syntax as he develops as a writer that's not a sentence he would have written for example at, at different stages of his career if we look at the way his sentences expand for example in a farewell to arms you think about you know, he, I think it's overstating it to say that all of his sentences are really short and concise. I mean, he plays his sentences like mm. a jazz musician, right? Yeah. Sometimes he needs to blow a long note. Other times it's a short staccato piece. But I think the use of the word there, right, what does that mean to you as a reader? And think about what we all return to when we when we try to go home. And I think this is very much a story of a homecoming homecoming and the domestic squabbles or whatever home represents to anyone, that's one thing. But if you can find the home in nature to return to that, you can find something that really won't in this case disappoint you. And I think that's the crucial part here. There's no disappointment in the story, right? Nick is managing nature. He is managing his expectations. There's that great tranquility as he falls to sleep and, you know, he's able to sleep peacefully. You think about how throughout Hemingway's, uh, all of his fiction right the the challenge of getting a peaceful night's sleep when he's there beside the river he truly is at one with the natural world sleeping on on the on the pine needle floor of the forest in Spain or in northern michigan that's a place where he's at peace
0: mark would you read the sentence just one more time for us sure
1: can i put it in the paragraph of course all right i'm going to put it back in the paragraph because it's too short to stand alone but <laughs> Nick looked at the burned-over stretch of hillside where he had expected to find the scattered houses of the town and then walked down the railroad track to the bridge over the river. The river was there. It swirled against the log piles of the bridge. Nick looked down to the clear brown water colored from the pebbly bottom and watched the trout keeping themselves steady in the current with wavering fins. As he watched them, they changed their positions by quick angles only to hold steady in the fast water again. Nick watched them a long time.
0: Mark Ott, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun.
0: And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on HemingwaySociety.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at OneTruePod. That's the number OneTruePod. Email us at OneTruePod at gmail.com. Or leave us a message at 321-209-1345. Our show is a production of the Hemingway Society and is supported by the University of Evansville and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast.